verses 1 to 30. It's on the screen if you'd like to follow along. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. And then Jacob asked them, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to the pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of this well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, my time is completed, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the youngest daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week. And then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Thank you, Esther. 
So that passage is in your leaflets, if you've got that in front of you. <clears throat> well, have you ever had that experience where you pour your heart and soul into something, but you end up with no recognition, and yet others who seem to make no effort at all get all the credit? You try your best, but lazy people get the same reward. Um, so maybe you've experienced this in education at school, you need those dreaded work words, group work. Ugh. You know, there's always a passenger, isn't there? There's always the girly SWAT who kind of does most of the work, but there's always a passenger who does the bare minimum and gets the same credit as everybody else. And if you think you've never been in a group like that, that means you were the passenger. Okay, so. Or at work, you know, you work hard, you go above and beyond. You actually read the organization's mission statement and try to fulfill it. Meanwhile, I don't know, Derek rocks up late every day. You know this worker, wanders around waiting to drag anyone who will listen into the black hole of their latest set of grievances and how it's all somebody else's fault. And they get paid exactly the same as you. Now that's demoralizing, but it seems all the worse when it comes to living life for God. Because if we're honest, people who live without reference to God, not even thinking about him, never even mind rejecting him, they very often seem to do pretty well in life, don't they? Faithless people seem to do okay despite being godless. And sometimes it's even because they're godless. And it can lead us to, I don't think it usually leads us to give up on God, but it can lead us to put God over in one corner and then think of much of our life, the rest of our life, as the sort of secular bit that God hasn't got very much to do with. So that we profess belief in God, but functionally, in all this big bit here, we become functional atheists. Now, Jacob, this story, this bit of Jacob's story of finding a wife, you might notice that lots of parallels with how his mum, Rebecca, was found for his dad, Isaac. But with one big difference. God is not mentioned. He's not honoured. God's not prayed to. Jacob is the man of promise. And if he's going to get this blessing anyway, does it really matter what he does? And if God's going to keep his promise to us, to bless us, to save us, does it matter what we do? Well, today's passage has got answers for us. Uh, there's an outline in your leaflet where we're heading. Um, Jacob meets his matches. So first of all, I'm just going to take us through the story again. So John Le Carre, the spy novelist, said, the cat sat on the mat is not a story. The cat sat on the other cat's mat is a story. Now, just in eight words there, that prompts our imagination, makes us feel attention, just in one sentence. And the Bible has these historical narratives like this that draw us into the story, that help us to feel and relate to what's going on. So I'll just draw out the highlights and explain a few bits as we go along, just retelling the story. And I just want to say up front, though, <clears throat> this account isn't in the Bible to give approval to the way the women are treated in this story. I don't want you to tune out of this because it seems like the Bible is saying that removing all women's agency and treating them like property and marrying off two of them is all a good idea. 
Now, remember in Rebecca's story, she did get a say in the matter. And next week, we'll see all the negative consequences, and this week, but more next week, of, of all the negative downside of running a household like, like this. All that's to say, just please stay engaged. Don't um, switch off for like me too reasons. There's much to learn here for our modern lives. So we'll look at the story, and then we'll look at each of the characters to see what we can learn from them. Okay, Jacob meets his matches. So the story so far, Jacob's basically on the run. He's having stolen the blessing that his dad Isaac intended to give his twin brother Esau. Jacob remembers his mum Rebecca's favourite, and she's wisely packed him off out of the way to a brother's Laban's house in Haran, back not in the Promised Land. That's back up from where Abram's extended family, where Abram came from. So he's sent off there till Esau cools down. The other benefit of going there is that he can find himself a wife from their clan, from within the, the family of promise, just as Rebecca was found for Isaac. On the way, Jacob's had a dream in which he's seen God and God's spoken to him. And God has confirmed that the blessing promised to Abram and to Isaac of descendants of land and of blessing the whole world that is going to carry on through Jacob. God's confirmed that. And so in response, Jacob made a vow that God will be his God. So the tension in the story now is, how is trickster Jacob going to live out his commitment to God? Is he going to change? And how is God going to fulfill his promise of descendants and land, given that Jacob is not even married, let alone had got any children, and is returned back to, Jake, to Abram's homeland, looking like he might well put roots down there. So let's get into the story. So if you just have the passage in front of you in your leaflets, follow along. So Jacob, ill-prepared, on the run. He's, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack to try and find his extended family. But God has promised, I will be with you. So it's no coincidence when he bumps into some shepherds who know his uncle Laban well. Now, they're hardly great conversationalists, are, you? are they? It's like a teenager. You know, when teenagers go to the fridge and forage for food. Oog, oog. It's like, that's, this, that's what these shepherds are like. You can imagine Jacob, the kind of posho, stay-at-home mummy's boy, trying to relate to these outdoorsy Esau types. I, I say, chaps, uh, where are you from? Ha- Haran. Oh, do you happen to know my Uncle Laban? Yep. Okay. Is he well? Yep. It's a faint whistle of wind. You see a bit of tumbleweed going past. He's hard work, these shepherds. This isn't looking great. Here comes his daughter, Rachel. Now things are looking up. Jacob's out of his depth, but he's still the same wily, struggling battler of a character. And so he works the situation in order to impress Rachel. He complains to the shepherds it's too easy to be knocking off work just yet. He's probably trying to get a few minutes alone with Rachel. But the shepherds want to wait until everyone's sheep are gathered before going to the big effort of rolling the stone lid off the top of the well to water the sheep. But always quick to grab an opportunity, Jacob single-handedly does it himself. The hardest job of the day. Removing the wellstone, coincidentally, just as Rachel arrives. So you can imagine Rachel eyeing off this new fella, can't you? 
slow motion, the sun glinting behind him, flowing locks, biceps rippling as he takes charge of lifting the stone off, as if to say, hey babe, your sheep look thirsty. Now this is James Bond sauntering into a bar and ordering a martini, shaken not third level of suaveness from Jacob here. And they make the connection that they're extended family. Like his dad's servant, Jacob's found a good match for his wife at the first well he's come to. God promised to be with him, and everything is going so smoothly. That must be what's going on. So Jacob kisses Rachel and weeps aloud in gratitude. At last, the promised blessing is starting to happen. And as with Isaac's servant, Rachel's dad Laban, he hears the family's in town and runs out to meet him. Because he remembers the last time one of Israelis, the ser- uh, well, the Israeli's servant came, you know, remember the, the ten camels, the gifts, wow, the gifts. And Laban's thinking, ka-ching, what's this nephew Jacob going to bring me? Well, no camels, no gifts. Just himself and that weird story about a blessing that his wife's brother went on about. Still, he embraces, Laban embraces Jacob, welcomes him to his home as a good uncle should. But soon enough, it's Laban and not Jacob who starts getting tricky. Laban's determined to get something out of Jacob. Verse 14 and 15. Then Laban said to him, oh, you're my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Oh, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now that sounds like Laban's being generous, but it's not how you're supposed to treat a relative. He's moving Jacob out of the role of family member into the role of servant of the family. Because Laban knows Jacob's got a weakness he can exploit. Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, poor Leah, weak eyes there. It's actually quite hard to translate. The word translated weak could mean... Um, well, it could mean fairer skin, or it could mean gentle, young eyes. Maybe it's saying she was older, but still attractive. Anyway, the gist of it is, what Leah looks like doesn't matter to Jacob. His heart is set on Rachel. It didn't matter that Leah's the older, and so should have been the first to marry. He's all about Rachel. End of story. So, you know, it's like when he thinks about Rachel, every time she's on screen, you know, it's pink vignette, heart-shaped, hearts and flowers. You can imagine a montage of them skipping through the paddocks, cuddling lambs. And Laban leverages this to get seven years free labor out of Jacob. Jacob's got nothing to offer except his work. But then how romantic is verse 20? So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. But then once the seven years is up, Laban pulls a really nasty trick. 
The word feast in verse 22 for the wedding really refers to an almighty booze up. So Jacob with his big goggles on in the dark, his wife probably veiled, Jacob is fooled into sleeping with the wrong sister. Verse 25, when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? The deceiver has been deceived. And not only that, with his own trick of forcing mistaken identity. And Laban reasons on the principle of Leah being firstborn. Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. That same firstborn principle that Jacob had worked to overturn in his own family. Jacob's getting the taste of his own medicine. He's met his match, and now he has to work another seven years for his love match. So there is, as the story, similar to Abram's servant and Rebecca's story, but no mention made of Jacob's faith, only his charm offensive. The women this time voiceless, Jacob arriving empty-handed, nothing to offer, Marriage not mentioned up front, instead getting tangled up and secondary to business arrangements. And yet through it all, God is still fulfilling his promises of blessing. Okay, let's have a look at each person in this passage to see what they can teach us. Bear with me. So, Rachel, first of all, just briefly. Well, the first thing to notice is that immediately God is turning events to fulfill his promises. He's providing a wife for Jacob so that descendants can be on the cards. Uh, Another thing to say, just as this passage is not about saying it's okay to treat your daughters like they're property, nor is it saying marrying someone just because you find them attractive is a good idea. Abram's servant, um, when he went looking for Isaac's wife, he prayed. He was really keen to make sure the match was the, only, was the one that God wanted. Jacob has consulted, well, just himself, from the outset. So imagine if God had said to him later on, no, Rachel's not the one I want you to marry. At the end of seven love-struck years, would he have been able to turn around and obey God. Not just in relationships, in all of life, we need to be careful what we're investing ourselves in. And if it lines up, whether it lines up with God's purposes for us. Be careful what we're investing ourselves in before we become so invested that it's hard to give up. So that's Rachel. There's a lot more about Rachel next week. What about Jacob? What can we learn from Jacob? But whatever assessment we make of him here, God is being faithful to him. He is with him. And it might be the long way around, two lots of seven years, but Jacob is provided with two wives who will go on to bear his descendants. I mean, we were wondering at the start, Jacob's promise that God is his God, and is Jacob now living in light of God's promises? 
I mean, despite being empty-handed and all alone, he does have a confident wiliness about him, wooing Rachel with his right family credentials, his strong arms, his dashing chivalry. Now, is that confidence in God, or is it the same old struggling battler, Jacob? Well, later when Jacob is the victim of Laban's con, he deals with it patiently and faithfully, putting in another seven years' work on top of the seven he's already done. So notice Jacob is the man of promise, but he has to become a long-suffering servant to get there. God has brought him here to Haran to find a wife, but God has also brought Jacob here to suffer at the hands of Laban. Because Jacob's going to be the father of God's nation, he needs to become more than the man he is now. He needed that discipline, that hardship. See, God could have provided him with ten camels on the way, couldn't he? All the rest of it. Instead, Jacob met God and went the long way around to becoming his man. We've noticed before, um, looking at Jacob, God has a bias towards the broken. Time and again, it's the rat bag in need of changing that God chooses to fulfill his purposes. And it's the same with us. God rescues us, saves us through Jesus' death on the cross. So it's never about our performance which determines whether we're saved or not. That's all down to whether we trust in Jesus to save us. If we rest all our weight on him, he will do what he promised and save us from our sin. But God loves us too much to leave us as he finds us. And sometimes we need God to take us the long way around to becoming more like Jesus. Hebrews 12 verse 10 puts it like this. Like a parent, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share his holiness. We need God's discipline. So when times get hard, don't despair. We need those times to mature us. God is doing a good thing in us. God uses the worst of life as well as the best of life to bless us. Jacob was the man of promise, but he had to serve for donkey's years. Jesus is the ultimate man of promise. He's God's chosen one. But he came not to be served, but to serve. To serve even the worst of us. As you read this story about Jacob, don't you find yourself wanting Jacob to become better, to become a good man for God. We need to flip the mirror. Do we want the same for ourselves? Do we want to change? So just reflect on this year, 2022, you in this year. How has God been disciplining, taking you the long way around to change you? And what would you like him to be changing about you in 2023? God loves us too much to leave us as he finds us.
So that's Jacob. Next, Laban. Well, he's a slippery eel, isn't he? Jacob seems to have met his match. And Laban doesn't care about God's purposes. He just cares about leveraging them to get to his own advantage. And despite living without reference to God, he seems to do all right, doesn't he? He gets 14 years free labor out of Jacob, at least. And he gets two of his daughters married off. But it's not that simple, is it? There are huge consequences to Laban's actions. He's sown division and discord between Jacob, between his wives. And as we'll see next week, division that will become significant in God fulfilling his purposes. And later on, when we see Laban later on, we find him desperately searching for his man-made idols, superstitiously insecure without them. All his schemes are never enough to make him feel like he's really safe. So Laban's life, without reference to God, could do nothing to scupper God's plans, but it did make things a lot harder than they needed to be. Didn't spoil God's plans, but it did make things a lot harder than they needed to be. So now that you're familiar with this passage, later on, go back to chapter 24 and see the contrast of what smooth sailing that was, how much better everything was. It's a joyful thing when everyone's trying to do right by God. God doesn't need our obedience to fulfill his plans. But when we do obey... We're caught up in joyful blessing. Even through suffering and hardship, we're caught up in joyful blessing when we line up our purposes in doing what we do with God's purposes. Laban and Jacob show us God's normal way of disciplining us is cause and effect. Cause and effect. God disciplines us by allowing us to live with the consequences of our actions. See, in in today's passage, Jacob's on his own, empty pockets, needing to work for his wife because of his past actions, because he's having to hide from Esau. Laban's deviousness is allowed to happen, just like Jacob's own was. It's all more messy and difficult and painful than it needed to be. Yet through it all, God is fulfilling his purposes. The ancient lie from the Garden of Eden is that God wants to spoil our fun, that we're better off trying to bless ourselves. And it's just not true. True blessing is found in handing over the reins of our life to God. But God, in his kindness, allows us to experience the consequences of turning away from him. And that's a good, kind thing. Because just imagine how evil would become if we weren't reined in by the suffering of our own consequences. God disciplines us for our good. Just to draw things together, and I'll finish with Leah. If God is going to keep his promise to bless us, does it matter what we do? Yes. God can and does break in and heal and overcome the consequences of our sinful actions. But usually, normally, in his kindness, he limits our sinfulness by allowing us to suffer the consequences. Jacob the deceiver 
needed a bit of Laban the deceiver in his life for his own good. So keep thinking, what good is God working in your life at the moment? Living like a functional atheist won't scupper God's plans in the long run, but it will cause us to miss out on so much to be thankful for. for. Trying to keep God out of areas of our lives will cause us to miss out on the joy and the blessing that goes with lining up our purposes and who we are with God's purposes and who he is. But I want to finish, though, with Leah. Poor Leah, overlooked again. She's last on my list. Imagine how she's feeling in all of this. Overlooked. Unloved. Treated like she's the consolation prize by Laban, by Jacob. But not by God. Leah, in fact, is key to God's plan to bless the world. From her comes her last child, Judah. Judah, whose name sounds like the word for praise. She named him that after saying, This time I will praise the Lord. In the end, Leah finds her meaning in God's love and care for her. And with her faith in him, knowing his love, she can overcome all the hurt and rejection. And in the long run, it's Leah who gets the last laugh. Because from her child Judah will come Jesus, the ultimate man of promise, through whom God keeps his promise to bless the whole world. So don't value yourself, your life, based on the fickle, self-centered assessment of others. Don't value yourself and your life based on the fickle, self-centered assessment of yourself. There's no one more harshly judgmental, no one who will show you less grace than yourself. See yourself as God sees you. His precious child, so loved that he sent Jesus to die in your place so you can be reconciled. Living life as a functional atheist, it won't scupper God's plans. But given he loves you this much, given living for him gathers us up into his blessing and his joy, why would you want to leave him out of the picture? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you care for us and so you discipline us and uh, we pray for those of us struggling with struggles right now pray we'll if there's any discipline we have to learn from that we won't miss the point uh, please we want to grow in holiness to be more like jesus so we can glorify you i thank you for jacob and all that we can learn from him uh, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you love and care for us so much that you sent Jesus to die for us. Amen.